Wilbur R. Miller is professor of history at Stony Brook University and the author of A History of Private Policing in the United States, which we discuss in this episode. At a time when the role of private and public policing is being deeply scrutinized in the U.S. and globally, this conversation couldn't be more relevant. In part one of this episode, we discuss the history of privatization in the police force and how in tandem with the U.S. military and prison system, it has served as a major component of authority in America as an auxiliary of the state. Our conversation covers everything from gun violence, the role of police in suppressing the American labor movement in the 60s, and the current campaign to defund the police. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking to Bill Miller, the author of A History of Private Policing in the United States. Thank you so much for being on the show, Bill. For so many reasons, private policing is front and center in our national conscience right now, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your book. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to discussing it. Just off the bat, to demystify some terminology, how would you define private policing and how did it begin in the United States? Okay, the first part, I define it very broadly, and some people don't like the broad definition. The usual definition is policing by profit-making organizations, but I've defined it really as private individuals or groups controlling the behavior of other people, either to prevent the behavior from occurring or to react to it. Under that definition, I included such things as self-defense, the armed citizen, which is such a big deal in the U.S., vigilante groups, and then most of the book is about what you commonly consider private police, that is private detectives, security guards, strike-breaking organizations, things of that sort. As I say, my definition is very broad. Some people like it, some people don't. And how would you distinguish it from public policing? Public policing is an agency of the state. Police are employed by a government at various levels. Private policing is not an agent of the state, although very often the state either passively, tacitly accepts private policing or actively cooperates with it, sometimes even subsidizes private police groups. And since you're a historian, for the people who are listening, could you talk a little bit about how police in the United States was actually created? Well, that's a long story. You're talking about police in general. Yeah, because, I mean, all policing originally, and that's true in Britain as well as the U.S., was essentially responsive. There were no full-time patrols back in the 18th century and early 19th century in the U.S., except for some slave patrols, which people have pointed out quite recently are very important in the history of police. So usually if a crime occurred, you had to go to a court or go to the local individual who was a constable, often an elected official. And you went to the constable or the court. The constable then would go to the court and get a warrant if you could figure out who had committed the crime against you. And this is a small society where people often did know each other. If they didn't, the constable would act as more like a detective. And the constable usually had some connections to the underworld. They had a network of informers like they do today. And they would do detective work essentially for the individual as a client. And the individual who was the victim often had to pay expenses for this investigation. So it was, as I say, reactive. 
And that pattern persisted well into the 19th century. When the London Metropolitan Police were established in 1829, some Americans began to agitate for preventive policing, that is, patrol forces, full-time patrol forces. And But it's not until 1845 that New York City, the first city in, in the U.S. to establish police, established a force modeled very loosely on the London model with police precincts, no uniforms yet, not till 1853, a structure of command. It is basically very kind of the skeleton of London was imported to New York, but some very American things were added onto it that have made the American police American. One was no uniforms at first. Americans reacted against uniforms as being too military, a standing army, or the police themselves didn't like them because they represented the livery of a servant. So there's reactions against uniforms. It's complicated. The police were under politicians' control. Essentially, they were under the control of the city council, later the mayor, later appointed commissions. But the main feature of 19th century American policing was systemic, and I mean systemic, corruption. If you wanted promotion in the police, if you wanted to be hired as a police officer, you had to pay for it. And you had to pay the low-level politician to pass on part of the proceeds up to the higher levels. So it was all integrated with politics. And often part of the deal was accepting payoffs or actually soliciting them, demanding them from brothel keepers, gambling house keepers, that sort of thing. So probably, I think there are a lot of distinctive features about the American police, but I think one of the most distinctive for a lot of its history has been the systemic corruption. I know British police have had their episodes of corruption. But it was not part of the structure of the institution. Yeah, they also don't have guns. They don't have guns. And the American police getting guns is interesting because they didn't carry guns either until 1857. And, you know, 1845, they were established. A lot of police said guns are kind of cowardly. I use my fists and my club. And the guns, of course, available until about late 1840s, early 1850s were single shot pistols. I came across a diary in my earlier researches for a book on New York City and London, where the police officer fired his gun at a crook. The crook fired a gun at him, but both of them misfired. Oh, that's so much for the gun. By 1857, revolvers had been perfected. Now, 1857, it's a long story also. That's okay. The state government was trying to control the police force for political reasons, largely. And the city government was trying to keep control of the police force. So at one point, you had two police forces, literally battling each other in the streets for control of the streets. The mayor refused to allow the state to take over the police. It was kind of an act of resistance. Also, members of criminal gangs attacked police officers. Some were killed. So at that point, they began carrying guns informally, sort of an individual choice. It was not like, okay, now we're going to carry guns. They pretty much carried guns that way throughout the rest of the 19th century. It's Teddy Roosevelt, who was a police commissioner in the early 20th century, who systematized gun carrying and insisted on training and so on for the use of the guns. So by the early 1900s, guns were institutionalized in the police. And by then, of course, criminals are carrying guns. One of the first gun control laws passed in New York was a law against carrying of concealed weapons in the early 20th century. At what point did that sort of evolution of the police force kind of begin to look like what we see the police as today? In terms of training, education level, general freedom from political corruption, 
from political influence, although in Chicago it persisted into the 1960s and 70s. But you generally, by about the 1940s, 1950s, most of the problems had been kind of settled in that respect, except, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure. Now, I'm talking about public police. The racial issue is always there. I'm sure you have questions about that. (laughs) I do, yeah. We can get into that. They look more like modern police by the 1950s. So a little bit more about you and actually how you came to do this research. I mean, I know from looking into your background that you were involved with the free speech movement as an undergrad at UC Berkeley in the 60s. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how you became interested in the history of private policing? You have asked me my favorite question. (laughs) I was in a crowd observing, I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but observing the behavior of the police at Berkeley, pulling people down the stairs of the administration building by their feet, heads bumping against the stairs. And I thought this was really brutal right? And so I was standing next to one of my instructors who was a grad student, a TA, teaching assistant, who I asked him, I turned around and asked him, why are the police so gross in America? And he said to me, I don't know. Would it make a very good dissertation topic? And so I went to Columbia for grad school. I wrote my MA thesis on dime novel detective stories, which got me interested into the history of the actual police themselves. And then I wrote my thesis on comparing the New York City and London police up to 1870. That was my first book called Cops and Bobbies. So it was just a kind of, I saw something happening. And of course, at that time in the mid-60s, the whole issue of police brutality was a very live issue. When I did my dissertation, it was a period when people were beginning to pay attention to studying the police. I think the first history of an urban police force history of Boston came out in 1968 or something like that. Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, as you said, the police became such a prominent part of our cultural conversation, especially, I think, at the heart of college campuses in the 60s because of all the anti-war protests and all the civil rights protests. And I mean, you still see that legacy shining through today at Berkeley and just the UC system has this sort of growing cops off campus movement that you can see growing around other university campuses in the United States. I mean, it's interesting to me that it's starting on campuses, but then when you think about how entangled the police are in, it's as you said, it's so systemic that they're entangled in pretty much every aspect of our lives. They are embedded in so many different institutions, but university specifically, can you explain the ways that policing budgets and presence are sort of entangled with our public education system. I'm thinking about things like the campus police cooperating with ICE, for example. That's a major factor, of course. And campus police on some campuses also police a large area around the campuses. And in fact, one of the things I describe in my private policing book in Detroit, the campus police of Wayne State University started patrolling the downtown district. Much to the pleasure, the shopkeepers were quite happy to see them there. Campus police, I think, just started out basically as security guards. And they expanded as campuses expanded. Campuses, you know, became cities virtually. Like Berkeley at the time I was there had 25,000 students. I don't know how many it has now, but I'm sure many, many more. So they became cities with all of the complex problems of cities. In at Stony Brook, where I taught for a long time, Stony Brook University on Long Island, the campus police were called public safety for many years. And then they wanted to be designated as police and they became actually part of the state police system. So they vary a lot. 
But I think the, the way they're entwined with budgets is increasingly they're given a lot more jobs to do. And they cooperate with the regular police in criminal investigations and that sort of thing. At Berkeley, when I was there, the first police to try to control the demonstrations were the campus police. There just weren't enough of them to do it. And in fact, if you know about that iconic photograph of Jack, I'm blotting out his last famous picture of the man in the police car, right? That's a campus police car. And then they brought in the Oakland police. And the Oakland, California police already at that time had a reputation for roughness and brutality. So there's definitely a connection between policing a campus and policing the surrounding area. Yeah. And it sort of just reminds me of this conversation that I've been having a lot over the past year about, I mean, whether they want to or not, that the police sort of have their hands in everything, that they're expected to be social workers, but also crisis counselors. There's also like an enormous amount of brutality in their patrolling of campuses, as you said. For me, it's just been a discovery of like seeing all of this money like hidden in our budgets everywhere to support the police. It's so misleading. You get somebody like Mayor Bill de Blasio, you know, I'm based in New York City, and he talked about (laughs) scaling back the police budget, but then actually doubled their budget within the education budget. It was all very like hidden behind. Police in the the public schools in New York. Oh, yeah. I mean, get them out and have just some kind of school guards of some sort. Yeah, plenty of school guards at CUNY too, like at the university level. Yeah, I guess for me, what really interests me in all of this is like the whole conversation around like defunding the police gets complicated because of the fact that this money is just embedded in all these places and all these, yeah, all these organizations are sort of connected to one another, which sort of brings me to my next question, which is all about Can you illuminate a little bit about the relationships between private policing, but our prison system and military contractors? I'm trying to think about like what institutions and organizations underpin the U.S. carceral state. I think that there are some of the private companies that provide all three, (laughs) private police, private prisons, and private military contracting. Now, this, of course, is the trend in the U.S. that Well, the Reagan administration really started it. And in the UK, of course, Thatcher started it. And it's a trend that has been building for quite many years of privatization. It's supposed to be cheaper. It's supposed to be more efficient. It's union free, usually, right? So there's not that problem. But the argument generally was private is better than public, which to me is very much an American idea, although the The UK did that under the Thatcher administration as well. So I know the Blackwater Company, that is notorious, of course, for their role in Iraq. And one of these guys who killed several Iraqi civilians, right, got pardoned by Trump recently. The Blackwater Company operated in New Orleans in the aftermath of the Hurricane Katrina disaster. And they didn't have a very good reputation. They walked around basically in combat gear. The regular police, the public police, city police, essentially fell apart after Katrina. So that and several other private firms were contracted with the U.S. government to come in and do the basic policing. One, actually a U.K.-based company called Armour or something or other, was involved in a shootout. These are private individuals whose loyalty is not to the public, but to their employers. Now, in the case of prisons, of course, there's a whole private prison network 
It's more important on the federal level, at least it was. I think the Biden administration has already said they're going to not renew any contracts with private prisons. The Obama administration had cut all the federal government participation in private prisons, and the Trump administration reinstated it. But one thing even the Biden administration has retained is contracts with private companies for immigration detention centers. So... Privatization is very much part of our carceral state, especially if you consider immigration detention as part of that. Oh, it absolutely is a part. I think that they're all interconnected to create one sort of hegemonic carceral umbrella. But yeah, I think that when you privatize something, it's obviously shielding you from civilian accountability in a way. I mean, not that I think that the public police really have to experience a ton of civilian accountability regardless, but I do think that privatizing it sort of protects police forces and it protects the carceral state from undergoing any kind of like real change because... Yeah, it's operated by people who are doing it for profit and by CEOs that can make these decisions based on what their boards say. It's so crazy because obviously it affects all of us as civilians, but we have absolutely no say in how much money and how they actually conduct themselves. But something else that you were talking about that I found interesting, they obviously as a private company are pretty anti-union. But on the flip side of that, you talk a lot about in your book how they actually cracked down on sort of labor organizing at large in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that history of policing and the U.S. labor movement and how it's shaped organizing unions and strikes in the U.S. today? That's a huge area of U.S. history. It's responsible for most of the violence in the U.S. after the Civil War through the 1930s. In the late 19th and early 20th century, virtually all the levels of government were arrayed against the labor movement. Courts, public police, private police at the federal, state, municipal level, the bosses at the time had the government on their side. And so you have a whole array of forms of policing of labor. There are a few exceptions where local police refuse to cooperate with the bosses to help break strikes because their chief might have been elected by workers in a small town. But usually public police helped in breaking strikes. They were augmented by private police of all kinds. Some of them were spies who were trying to find union activity and organizers in plants in order to get them fired. There were guards who were strike breakers. There were specialized strike breaking services. There were private contributions to public police forces. So, In 1935, the federal government passed the Wagner Act, which essentially recognized as a right collective bargaining by labor unions. That was a big breakthrough. It was the first time the federal government had actually endorsed labor unions, what they did, except in World War I. There was a brief period of the government accepting unionization and plants in the interest of wartime peace. But in the 30s, after the Wagner Act was passed, many of the bosses, some accepted unionization, others waged a tremendous fight against it. And again, all those agencies were involved, except the federal courts and so on now. But you had public and private policing of all kinds working against the strikers, our union organizers. Finally, by World War II, when the war broke out, everything changed because there's need for workers. Uh, So it was not this struggle any longer. Now, 
50s was a period of essentially kind of labor management cooperation. That was the era where unions began to actually get strong, but also very conservative. It's where employer benefits, employer medical insurance was negotiated. That's the main reason we don't have a national health service. And so generally in that period, unions were a strong factor in politics. They had lots of influence. They were growing. When the Reagan administration came along and deindustrialization, which coincided with that period, it wasn't designed to be, but it did. Unions were weakened. Employers became tougher. They began to hire private forces again, and they hired both armed private forces and they hired specialists in basically fooling workers into voting against unionization. <laughs> One of the books I used in the private policing book was called something like From Clubs to Briefcases. <laughs> but the clubs returned, actually, even during the Clinton administration. So most of American labor history is a history of class conflict in which the government at all levels and private organizations were against the workers. This history is so fascinating to me. And even just hearing you put those pieces together, it makes so much sense. Like thinking about this history for me, it obviously wasn't just sort of McCarthyism, Red Scare, blacklisting celebrities. It was demoralizing workers through sheer brutality. And that makes a lot of sense. And it just reminded me of how little that's changed in the United States. Just thinking about the Hunts Point strike. I don't know if you were reading about this. There was this major strike that just happened in New York City with the largest produce distributor in New York City. They went on strike for several days to increase their pay by $1. And I think that there were more people arrested at this strike than there were at the insurrection, initially at least, happening on January 6th, which is just incredibly telling, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the job of the police is to provide order and preventing strikers from sitting in or getting into the market or the factory or whatever it is, that's part of their job. And so that's one reason they confront strikers. I believe in this case, the strikers actually won, which, they is, did. which is good. And you're getting more of that now. The labor movement might be reviving in the service sector. I don't want to be too optimistic about that, but it seems like it might be. But as far as a number of arrests with the January 6th invasion and insurrection, first of all, the Trump administration was trying to target left-wingers, right? They made up this myth of Antifa being a huge conspiracy, a nationwide organization. So the whole effort of all the agencies, Department of Justice, FBI, what have you, were not directed against right-wing extremists. So they totally underestimated their strength and their ability to organize. But I think in general, you don't target white men. Police don't target white men in general, whether they're walking on the street or engaged in a demonstration. And I think that's a major factor in the January 6th issue. Now, under a new administration, they are pursuing these guys and they're making arrests. What kind of punishment they'll get remains to be seen. I'm interested in how that develops. 